We are back in Luke this morning. Jesus has been arrested. He's been mocked and beaten, and now he is to stand essentially uh, before three courts or three moments in time when he is questioned. And so if you were listening and following along as Caleb read this text for us, you see that Jesus affirms his identity in these verses. We see the crowds who are whipped up into this anger, this frenzy. We see those in authority caving to pressure. And we see in all of it the grand design of our triune God. That he would accomplish his purpose and his will even in and through the sin of the people. So what I want to do this morning is walk our way through these verses, and specifically, I want to highlight three important themes I think it would be good for us to note this morning. So let's jump in. Notice in verse 66 of chapter 22, having just been beaten, Jesus is now put before the council. Verse 66, when day came, the assembly of the elders and the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. They led him away to their council and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, well, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. So Jesus is now standing in front of the council. This is the Jewish high court, the Supreme Court, so to speak. It was called the Sanhedrin. This is made up of religious leaders and priests. These are the individuals who would make local decisions regarding the Jews of Palestine, especially on things related to the Jewish religion. Notice the question they specifically ask here, him here in verse 65. If you are the Christ, tell us. They ask, in fact, a similar question in verse 30. They say, are you the son of God then? And this is the key issue of the whole trial. It's a question about Jesus. Is Jesus the Christ? We know that Christ is not Jesus' last name, so it would be good for us to understand a little more fully this morning what what in the world that word Christ actually means. What are they asking Jesus? Well, the Jews in Jesus' day would have been familiar with the term Christ. In fact, God had promised in the Old Testament to send the Christ, the rescuer, who would come, who would release or redeem God's people from their oppressors. This individual who would establish, who would start and begin and set up a new kingdom. And this was the Messiah figure that the people for hundreds of years had longed for and waited for. And these Sanhedrin leaders want to know, do you claim to be that guy? Now from one perspective, this was a really tricky question. 
The people had already identified, so many people had already identified Jesus as the Messiah. And the Sanhedrin, this court, knew that. These leaders are trying to trap Jesus because if Jesus says, yes, I am the Messiah, I am this king who has come, then the religious leaders could immediately and happily, right, with smiles on their faces, take Jesus to the Roman authorities and say, this guy is an insurrectionist. He is trying to usurp the the throne. He's trying to overthrow Caesar and begin a new empire and a new kingdom. And therefore, you should put him to death. It's ironic, even just as a sideline, and we're going to get here a little bit later, that this man Barabbas that is on the scene a little later in our text is actually, truly, authentically guilty of that very sin. He was an insurrectionist. So... Jesus is asked this question, are you the Christ, are you the king? But if Jesus denies being the Messiah, it would not only be a lie, but it would undermine his entire ministry. Notice how Jesus answers. In verse 67, he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Jesus doesn't answer them directly. He knows this court isn't fair. He knows the members of the court don't actually care whether or not he is the Messiah. This is not an honest question. They're not trying to get to the the truth. Rather, they're trying to frame him. Notice what Jesus does. He answers their question, but he tells them that he is the son of man seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now that kind of imagery and that picture would have been lost on the Romans who would not have understood what in the world Jesus was talking about. However, to the Jews who were gathered around Jesus, they would understand exactly who Jesus was now claiming to be. In fact, this is a direct reference to the prophecy that Daniel had made between 550 and 600 years earlier. So in the book of Daniel, God comes to Daniel with a vision about a son of man who would come, who would come with power and who would be given all authority and who would establish a kingdom that would never end. In fact, you read some of that very text as our scriptural call to worship this morning. But I want to read it again for you so that you can just see how amazing this is, this vision that God gives to Daniel. Keep in mind, this is close to 600 years before Jesus stands before this court. Daniel writing in Daniel 7 says, And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. It's amazing. 
And now Jesus stands before these Jewish religious leaders and he says, I'm the guy in Daniel's vision. I'm the liberating king that was promised, the true son of man, whose kingdom will never end. And to go even further then, Jesus adds here in verse 69, he says, but from now on the son of man shall be, and he adds this, this other image, seated at the right hand of the power of God, which is a concept taken directly from Psalm 110. We're not going to turn there. We don't have time for that this morning, but I would encourage you just to jot that down and return there maybe later today or tomorrow. But in Psalm 110, we read of a new and better King David that was coming. Like King David, but so much better. The true fulfillment of the very thing that King David was a foreshadowing of. And this new and ultimate and true Davidic king would come and after he accomplished the work that God had given to him, he would sit down at the right hand of the power of God on high. Jesus is telling them, I am the promised better Davidic king who will complete my father's work and then will sit down at the right hand of God in power and glory. D.A. Carson writes, Jesus indirectly affirms that he is the Davidic Messiah. And the one who here in this text is judged becomes the one who judges. Well, the Sanhedrin clearly understand what Jesus means because they ask him a second question in verse 70. Are you the son of God then? And Jesus said to them, you say that I am. It's as though Jesus is saying to them, listen to yourselves. Listen to the words that are coming out of your mouth. You are saying that I am. I am. This brings us to our first of three big themes this morning. Big theme number one, Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Christ. And like light that is refracted as a, as a jewel is turned, we see in each one of these three names of Christ or descriptions of Christ parts of his divine character. He truly is and clearly was acknowledging the fact that he is divine. He rightly understood, as Paul would say in Philippians chapter 2, his equality with God. Like Jesus wasn't just a good moral teacher who happened to be a bit delusional. Jesus believed and claimed himself to be God. And the reality is sooner or later, every person who has ever lived or will ever live must deal with this reality. Who is Jesus? Like, was he a fraud? Was he misled? Was he mistaken? Was he simply a faith leader or a faith healer or a faith preacher? Was he simply a model for how we ought to live? Like, the good life is embodied in Jesus. Or, 
Or is he the living and true God? Is he God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity? Is he the rightful heir of David's royal throne? Is he the liberator, not only of believing Jews, but of all who trust in him, even today? You see, Jesus had no confusion about his identity. What about you? Who do you say that Jesus is? You might be thinking, well, at least the members of this court could see Jesus with their own eyes. They could hear him audibly from his physical mouth speaking. They could shake his hand. They could touch him. And that is true. But what's also true is that so many, in fact, most of the people who saw his miracles and could shake his hand and could hear his physical voice as he spoke walked away without believing in him. In fact, if we applied the same metric in Jesus' life and ministry that we oftentimes apply to like pastors and church leaders and religious leaders today, he would probably fail most of the metrics. Right? Think about it on his resume. Right? Carpenter's son begins ministry at the age of 30. You think, well, that's kind of late, maybe to kind of get a start in vocational ministry. Ministers and has immediate success. The crowds swell and flock to Jesus by the thousands, people wanting to hear him teach and see him do miracles and hang on his every word. And they walk around a lake all night long to get to the next place where they're going to hear him preach. I mean, it puts Billy Graham to shame, right? Like, the people that wanted to hear him. And yet, as he began to hone his teaching in from the, from the general to the specific, and he began to call people to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. And to say things like, if you don't love me more than mother or father or sibling or spouse or anything else in the world, you're not fit to be my follower. Time and time again, the gospel writers say, and the crowds left him. They resigned him to the category of lunatic. Such that at this point, as Jesus stands on trial, you can count on one hand the amount of people who actually follow and believe. He degrows the Jesus movement. And these are people who saw him with their own eyes and could touch him and could shake his hand. And yet, as Jesus is so clear, even from his own lips, the desire for so many to see signs and the desire of so many to flock to hear him wasn't because they earnestly desired to believe, but it's because they wanted to be entertained. So now the Sanhedrin have gotten what they want all along. They have the grounds, or so they think, to get rid of Jesus. But there's a problem. They don't have legal jurisdiction and authority to put Jesus to death. For that, they need the approval of the commanding Roman official, a man by the name of Pilate, who arrives on the scene here in chapter 23, verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose, and they brought Jesus before Pilate. 
And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. And when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. Notice the way these Jewish religious leaders begin to subtly change their accusation against Jesus. When they're first making the accusations against Jesus, in the final verses here of chapter 22, their primary focus is on whether or not Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Now that they're standing before Pilate, and they realize Pilate isn't really going to care a whole lot about the Messiah claims, but he's going to care an awful lot about keeping the peace. In fact, in fact Pilate had for Romans the un, very unpopular and undesirable position of leading or having jurisdiction over the Palestine area, the Judean area. And that was undesirable because out of all the Roman Empire, the place that most often had uprisings and most often had attempts at overthrowing authority, it was those pesky Jews who were always believing that God would provide a king who would come and always so eager when a man arose to prominence and popularity and said, I'm the Messiah, I'm going to take back our nation from the, from, the, from, the, from the Romans, they were all too quick to rally around. So Pilate's number one point on his job description was keep the peace. Keep everything calm. And so they present Jesus as this one who is misleading the nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he is a king. You can see what they're doing here. History tells us that Pilate was not a moral or fair leader. Pilate had a long reputation for misusing his authority for personal gain. But here we see, in fact, we're going to see several times in our text that he recognizes Jesus is not deserving of the accusations leveled against him. And so he asks Jesus the only real question that he as a Roman would be concerned about. He says to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answers like he did previously, you have said so. Which is especially meaningful because that is the exact charge that Pilate will have Jesus crucified on. That he is the king of the Jews. And that is the exact statement of truth that will be posted on the cross above Jesus' head as he suffers and dies. The king of the Jews. Pilate unknowingly, unwittingly being used by God to proclaim the truth. But at this point, Pilate tries to release Jesus. In fact, he tells the Sanhedrin, I find no guilt in this man. In fact, Luke tells us that several times Pilate, as this Roman judge, declares Jesus innocent. It's almost 
as though, and I would argue it is what Isaiah 53, Isaiah predicted would happen in Isaiah 53. Jesus, the suffering servant, would be put to death even though he had done no violence, to quote Isaiah, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Before we get to Jesus' crucifixion, there's a detour. Pilate finds a way out. Because he discovers from the angry crowd that Jesus is actually from the region of Galilee, which has had to have been wonderful news for Pilate because he realizes, wait a minute, if he's from Galilee, he should go to Herod first because he's, he's under Herod's jurisdiction before it rises to my jurisdiction. And perhaps, and likely even, that he sends Jesus now to Herod, hoping that Herod will deal with Jesus and the angry crowd, and peace will be restored, and he won't have to mess with it. In fact, we read in verse 8 that Herod himself was very glad when he saw Jesus. Verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he, Jesus, made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Now Herod is excited to see Jesus, not because he believed Jesus, or because he wanted to listen to Jesus' teaching, but because, as Luke tells us, he wanted to see a sign. He wanted to be entertained. He, like the crowds, wanted Jesus to, to do something that would wow him. But Jesus doesn't follow along. In fact, Jesus is silent, which creates a dilemma for Herod. Commentator Tom Schreiner writes, Herod has no power over someone who remains silent. This silence, Schreiner writes, has a symbolic effect. The visual and acoustic vacuum created mirrors the spiritual blindness and deafness of Herod and the accusers. And once again, Jesus' silence is a fulfillment of the prophecy from Isaiah 53, 7, that he would be silent even in front of his accusers. And Herod is just another member of this evil generation that Jesus warned about in Luke chapter 11 that sought for signs and wonders, again, not so that they might believe, but so that they might be entertained. And so what is Herod to do? Well, he has Jesus beaten. These soldiers mock Jesus as a man with delusions of royalty, too blinded to see that they were actually torturing the king of kings. True divinity. And Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate. And we read here in verse 12 that Herod and Pilate became friends that day, which is an odd thing, it seems, for Luke to add in here. We don't know why that they were previously enemies, but they are now united in their evil against God the Son. And my best guess as to why Luke inserts this 
bit of data in there is because it seems to me to be a fulfillment of the words given to David in Psalm chapter 2, verse 2, where he writes, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The kings of the earth, Herod and Pontius Pilate, set themselves and the rulers, Herod and Pontius Pilate, take counsel together along with the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders against the Lord and against his anointed. Which brings us to the second big truth this morning, that Jesus is delivered over to the will of the people and yet all the while it was the will of God that reigned. God had predicted it. God had planned it. In fact, later, Peter will connect the dots as he prays to the Lord in the book of Acts. Peter prays in Acts chapter 4, and he says, Truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, he's praying to the Lord, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's what's happening here. The scribes and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and Pilate and Herod and the crowd were all freely acting according to their desires. Or we could say freely carrying out the desires of their will. They weren't forced to betray Jesus Christ. They were freely acting out of their moral, we could say, agency. And yet, all the while, They were fulfilling the divinely planned sacrifice of the Son of God. They were carrying out the very things that God had designed and predestined to take place. Which is just another example of the truth that the death of Jesus was not an accident. But took place according to God's plan, according to Scripture. And we've seen this, haven't we, over and over and over again through the book of Luke. Jesus comes at the divine direction of the triune God. Jesus is fully obedient. He is completely without sin, all according to the divine plan of God. He surrenders his life according to the plan of God, according to the prophecies, according to Scripture. We've seen this carried out in Jesus' incarnation in his life, in his ministry, in his teaching, in his healing, in his arrest, in his torture, and soon in his death and resurrection. We see over and over again that everything is happening according to the plan and purposes of God. He is delivered over to the will of the people, and yet all the while it was the will of God that reigned, just as even today it is the will of God that reigns. So what in the world is Pilate going to do? He goes back to the Jewish religious leaders, and he tells them, verse 13, Pilate calls together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, And he said to them, verse 14, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, 
Nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. And once again, the religious leaders are not about to let Jesus get off. Not when they're this close to getting rid of him. So they try a different tactic. Verse 18, but they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. And Luke adds for us, verse 19, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I've found no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. One commentator wrote, the pressure of the crowd upon Pilate is relentless. They kept shouting with intensity and fury that Jesus should be crucified. And as they do so, Pilate begins to weaken. He lacks the courage, the integrity to stand up against the crowd. What a graphic and powerful reminder this is of the tragic effects of the fear of man. And it's on display here in full with Pilate. He knew that Jesus was innocent. He knew the right thing to do. Three times he goes to the crowd seeking to release Jesus. But the power of the crowd, his own desire to keep the peace, his lack of moral courage, led him to finally and ultimately turn Jesus over to the wicked plans of the crowd. He releases the innocent by condemning the guilty. Or I should actually probably better say he releases the guilty by condemning the innocent. He releases the guilty by condemning the innocent. This may be the heart of these verses this morning. A guilty one is freed because the innocent one is substituted. I think that Luke assumes that we as his readers know about the tradition of releasing a prisoner during Passover. There may be a footnote in your Bible about that. But here, the crowd, grasping for anything they can, don't just ask for a prisoner to be released. They propose a trade. You crucify Jesus and we'll take Barabbas. And Barabbas, we're told, is a notorious criminal. He's been convicted as an insurrectionist and a murderer. Like, Barabbas is guilty of the very things that the religious leaders tried to accuse Jesus of. In fact, he's the very kind of person that the Jewish leaders and Pilate and Herod should have been justly concerned about. But here, their jealousy moves them to do the unthinkable. They kill the innocent to protect the guilty. 
Which brings us to our final theme this morning, and that theme is substitution. A guilty one goes free because the innocent one takes his place. Three times we've seen in our text that Jesus was innocent, without guilt. And yet the guiltless is killed. And then there's Barabbas. He's guilty of insurrection and murder. He deserves to die. And we see that Jesus, the innocent one, dies for Barabbas, the guilty one. I don't think the point here is whether or not Barabbas becomes a believer. We don't know anything else from church history about Barabbas after this. The point, rather, is that the innocent one dies for the guilty. One commentator writes, Jesus dies as God's sinless and innocent one. Even the pagans who are present recognize that Jesus does not deserve to die, that justice is miscarried. The story told here is our story. We too would have been screaming for Jesus' death that day. We would, apart from God's grace, act in the same way as the crowd. We've seen that Luke wants us, the reader, to account at a deeper level We should not read the narrative of Barabbas merely as a record of his release from prison. Of course, it's an account of Barabbas' liberation. He's a murderer and what we could call today a terrorist, and yet he is released as Jesus dies in his place. Luke wants each of his readers to see himself or herself in Barabbas. Our only escape from judgment is for Jesus to die in our place taking upon himself the punishment we deserve. This is why the story of Barabbas is our story. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. We all rightly deserve the wrath of God for sin, for our rebellion against the God who made us. And yet, in love, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born into our world, to live without sin, so that when he died, he would die as the perfect lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, as we sang this morning. So that all who trust by faith and believe in him, that he died for my sin, in my place, on the cross where I rightly should be, we might be saved. We might be forgiven. We might be justified in the sight of God. We might be, as Corey brought about earlier, adopted into God's family. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus we who believe who trust by faith might become the righteousness of God. That is, friends, the heart of the gospel. That is, friends, the most important reality in the universe. That God provided Jesus and put on Jesus the sin of all who believe and Jesus went to the cross and he took our punishment and he died in our place and he rose from the dead so that we who trust and believe in him might be changed, might be saved, might be forgiven, might be cleansed, might be washed, might be redeemed, might be sanctified, 
might be adopted. And one day when Jesus returns, might be glorified. <clears throat> and all of this was the plan of God. As we so often sing, man of sorrows, referring to Jesus, what a name, for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place, condemned he stood. And sealed our pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. A guilty and vile and helpless we and spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. And now in heaven Exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And when he comes, our glorious King, all his ransomed home to bring, and then anew, this song we will sing. Hallelujah, what a Savior. J.C. Ryle wrote, if we are true Christians, let us daily Lean our souls on the comfortable thought that Christ has really been our substitute, has really been punished in our stead. Let us freely confess that like Barabbas, we deserve death and judgment and hell, but let us cling firmly to the glorious truth that a sinless Savior has suffered in our stead and that believing in him, the guilty may go free. Hallelujah. What a savior. Let's pray. Father, we praise you today for your glorious redemption plan, for providing your perfect, holy, eternal son for us. Jesus, we thank you for your obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross, for your new life after the grave, for your intercession now as you are seated at the right hand of the Father. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for opening our blind eyes to see this glorious truth and to see our desperate need to lead us into the way of salvation through Jesus. Hallelujah, what a Savior. It's in the name of Jesus, with great gratitude and joy, we pray. Amen. Amen.